0: Welcome to the Faithful Forebears, a podcast about faithful Christian men and women throughout history. Episode 2.2, King Zara Yaqob. Welcome back. As I mentioned last time, we're focusing on a specific region this mini season. And we're focusing on Ethiopia. And I'm hoping that this way I can maybe overlap my research a little bit as I prepare these episodes. And I'm pretty excited about this episode because I discovered someone entirely new to me. As you'll see, I did not originally intend to have an episode entirely dedicated to this king, Zara Yaqab. But it just kind of ended up happening. But to get to him, we're going to have to cover about a thousand years of Ethiopian history. So buckle up. But I promise, it'll be worth it. So let's review a little bit. As we discussed last week, Ethiopia has a rich and ancient Christian history that goes back much further than most of Christian Europe. And unfortunately, most American Christians know very little about this. Last time, we were introduced to the Christian roots of Ethiopia as a nation and the Ethiopian Church, and we focused on the two great movers that established the Ethiopian Church, Frumentius and King Ezana. Frumentius, remember, was the prisoner turned government minister turned missionary, kind of similar to the stories of Joseph from Genesis or St. Patrick of Ireland. King Ezana was the powerful king, the close friend of Frumentius, who put the missionary plans into action and established the Ethiopian church as a lasting institution. Both Frumentius and Isana died sometime in the late 300s AD, so we'll be picking up our story around that time. So as I said, the work of Isana and Frumentius was very influential, but their influence was mostly on the elites of government and society in the larger cities. Most of the people in the countryside and the small towns and villages remained pagan or animistic. Remember, this is not unlike Europe at the time as well. For instance, when we looked at Boniface in episode 3, it took him and his missionaries hundreds of years before Christianity seeped down into the culture and became the common faith of Germany. And that was in the 700s AD. Well, in Ethiopia, in the 400s, things were similar. And the work of converting the populace would be done over centuries through many monks, priests, and missionaries. Of course, we don't know the names of all of them, but the most famous in Ethiopia were called the Nine Saints, and we do know their names. These Nine Saints were Abba Afsa, Abba Aleph, Abba Agawi, Abba Guba, Abba Lequanos, Abba Pantaloan, Abba Sema, and Abba Yamata. And I really don't know if I'm saying those names correctly or not, and they will not be on the test. But most of these missionaries came from the Roman Empire, especially the region of Syria, not far from the homeland of Frumentius. But we don't know many more specifics about this group. It's possible that they fled from the Roman Empire to escape a theological controversy that was happening at the time, the mono or Miaphysite controversy, if you care to know. But we do know that these nine helped found monasteries across the country, and they translated the Bible into the Ethiopian language of Geese. They also educated and formed a new clergy from the Ethiopian population. Through their work, Ethiopian identity became connected with the Christian faith. They also helped establish a thoroughly Ethiopian generation of church leaders. So from the time of Rumentius and Isana in the 300s AD, and to the time of the Nine Saints in the 400s AD, the Ethiopian kingdom of Aksum flourished. And by the way, it's Axum, not Askum. I mispronounced it last episode. My mistake. Their influence expanded across the Red Sea and deeper inland to Africa. The Ethiopian church still kept in loose contact with the rest of the Christian world, too. While they existed far away from the Roman Empire through the Red Sea, there was still a lot of trade and communication with Egypt, and from there all of Christendom. However, this all changed with the rise of a new power. Islam. As we've discussed before, the rise of Islam fundamentally changed the balance of power in the world. It toppled the Persian Empire and pushed the Roman Empire all the way out of Egypt and the Holy Land. This meant the Ethiopian Kingdom was now cut off from its former trading partner, and almost all communication and interaction with the rest of the Christian world. And just as Muslim armies were pushing back the Byzantine Empire, it also pushed hard against the Ethiopian Kingdom. Interestingly, at the very beginning of Islam, they were political enemies, but yet there was still mutual respect between the two nations, as they were fellow monotheists and not pagans. But there could be no lasting friendship. In the early 700s AD, Ethiopia lost all its territory on the far side of the Red Sea, and by the late 700s, the Red Sea was in complete control of Islam. Soon the once prosperous Ethiopian Ascomite kingdom was forced to retreat into the hills of their country. It was a time of serious decline in influence and power for this kingdom of Ethiopia. But it was not the end. For many centuries, Ethiopia lay somewhat dormant. It survived in the rugged hills and mountains of its interior. But a sort of revival came when a new dynasty ruled in Ethiopia. It is known as the Zagwe dynasty, which began ruling in the 1100s AD. They left their mark on the Ethiopian church by strengthening the monasteries and beginning the tradition of creating churches hewn from living stone, that is, carving structures right into rocks and cliffs. Many of those impressive structures still stand. This dynasty brought new vitality to the kingdom, and the three kings in that dynasty or officially saints, in the Ethiopian church today. But an even greater revival took place in the late 1200s AD. The Zagwa dynasty was toppled, and a new dynasty began with a king named Amlek. But Amlek told his people, this was not a new dynasty, but actually a restoration of an old one. Amlek is the first instance we see of a king claiming to be descended from King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. And whether true or not, it quickly becomes a part of the identity of the Ethiopian kings. Somewhere around this time, a collection of legends and writings also appears, called the Kebra Nagast, which was the foundation of this claim. The Kebra Nagast also includes two other claims, that the Ark of the Covenant was moved from Jerusalem to Ethiopia, and that now Ethiopia enjoys a special status as God's new chosen people. This gave the kings of Ethiopia a divine mandate that they could point to as well. The Kebra Nagast became, and still is, a national symbol and heritage, a sort of a national saga. But this also meant that going forward, all Ethiopian kings were also seen as defenders of the Ethiopian church with a special divine responsibility. The leadership of the church was split between two leaders. First, there was the bishop, called the Abuna. The first of whom was Fromentius, and then the Solomonic king, the secular but still divinely appointed head of the church. When the Abuna died, the king would send a delegation to Egypt for the Patriarch of Alexandria to choose a new one. And remember from last episode, there's a close connection between the Ethiopian church and the Egyptian church. And also, whenever a king died, it was the Abuna that would crown the new king. Sometimes this relationship worked great. Others, there could be conflict. This period around 1200 also shows a great increase in Ethiopian monasticism, along with a sort of a literary renaissance in Ethiopia. Ethiopia, as a cultural influence and political influence, was no longer dormant, and it was becoming a serious power in the region again. While Ethiopia rose as a power from the late 1200s to the early 1400s, the peak came through a man who will be our focus for today, King Zara Jakob. So, Zara Jakob is an interesting, faithful forebearer, to say the least. But I will warn you, he will not only be a hero, but he will also be somewhat of a villain. Like many others throughout history who we see strive for the bettering of the church, they sometimes committed terrible sins in doing so. And we should remember through all the podcasts, none of the individuals we learn about were perfect. Each had errors and mistakes and sins. Zahri Yaakob is certainly no different, and we will see him try to be a champion for the church in Ethiopia, and at the same time he will do some terrible violence to it. In that way, he reminds me a lot of Jean Gerson in episode 16, someone who was trying to save the church, but sometimes sacrificed things to do it. But while his legacy is mixed, he has been called the greatest king in Ethiopia since King Izana, and we will see why that is probably true. Zari Yaqab was born into the royal family, but was not the firstborn. He was born into a very large family, actually, with many brothers and half-brothers ahead of him in line, and his name simply means son of Jacob. And you'll notice that many of the names in this episode are simply Ethiopian versions of biblical names. Unfortunately for Zara Yaqab, it seems his childhood was not necessarily easy. As often the case with royalty, there was a fight for the throne in the family. And accounts here vary. But he was either sent away for his own protection by his mother, or he was forced into exile by his older brother. To keep him far away from the royal court, whatever the case, Zaryukub grew up in a monastery, which doesn't necessarily sound like fun for a child. But it appears that Zaryukub made the most of it, and he would make a connection with the monks and learn quite a bit from them. And it would have a lasting effect on him in two ways: first, he would have a deep knowledge and interest in theology for the rest of his life, and second. It made him care deeply about the fate of the church in his country. When he was about 30 years old, he was searched out by the royal court. All of his brothers had died, and now they came to crown this exile king. Now, to someone at the time, they probably would have had very little expectations for this new king. After all, Zariacub had not been trained at all in statecraft. He did not have strong personal connections with those in power. After all, he'd been living in a monastery this whole time. But for anyone that had low expectations for this new king, they would be very surprised. And it seems no one expected the energy, will, and sheer determination that Zara Yaqob would prove to have. So Zara Yaqob inherited a kingdom with many issues, but I want to focus mainly on three because it seemed to be the three that he was most focused on. First, Zariyacob knew his kingdom was the only Christian power in the region, surrounded by Muslims and tribal religions, so he knew he could not count on any of his neighbors or allies for support in that regard. Second, while Ethiopia as a kingdom had grown again, the church had not expanded its missionary work in these new regions that Ethiopia now controlled, and it was not well organized to handle these new challenges. And lastly, the Ethiopian church was currently plagued by a major schism. So I want to focus on all three of these issues, but I'll go in reverse order. So I'll start with that last problem I mentioned and work backwards. So first we're going to be looking at that schism that was breaking the Ethiopian church in two. The issue began about a hundred years before Zariyacob began his reign, with a monk named Iwustatewus, who began spreading his interpretation of biblical living. Iwustatewus believed that the church should follow the Old Testament laws more closely. Specifically, he believed that the Sabbath should still be kept, and it should be kept on Saturday. Now, that didn't mean that he thought Sunday should not also be like a Sabbath. Instead, he thought that both should be honored by Christians. He and his followers believed in what they called the greater Sabbath, Sunday, and the lesser Sabbath, Saturday. So, in a way, I guess, you could say that he invented the idea of a five-day work week, which I think we can all be on board with. But right away, this caused a division. The Church of Egypt learned about this teaching, and it was seriously opposed to it. And remember, all the Abunas, that is, the bishops of Ethiopia, came from Egypt. And these Egyptians saw this teaching of requiring Christians to submit to the Old Testament law as going directly against what Paul argues in the book of Galatians, that it is against the gospel to put the yoke of the old law on Christians. While Iwos ended up leaving Ethiopia, many of his followers stayed and they became known as a group as the House of Ewostatewos. And while officially they were excommunicated from the Ethiopian church, the followers grew until they were a serious force in the country that could not be ignored. So Zarayakub inherited this problem, this split between the House of Ewostatewos and those following the bishops from Egypt. Zara father had tried to heal the schism through a sort of a compromise, but it turned out not to be a lasting solution, and by the time Zahra Yaqob was on the throne, that compromise was totally breaking down. Zahra got his first chance for a major change when the old Abuna, remember, bishop, died. This man, named Bartelmas, was staunchly against the house of Iwostatewos, and so Zahra Yaqob saw in this an opportunity. With a new Abuna, perhaps, they would be more willing to reconcile, and this major part of Ethiopian Christianity could be brought back into the fold. But Zariyacob decided for an even bigger gamble. He knew that the Ethiopian church needed major reformation anyways, so he asked the patriarch in Alexandria not just for one Abuna, but to consecrate and send two Abunas, something unprecedented in the Ethiopian church's history. These two bishops ended up being Michael and Gabriel, coincidentally the only two named angels in the Bible. Zariyacob immediately began trying to convince these new two men sent from Egypt that unity could be reached between the different factions. Most of the opposition against the house of Eustatawos was coming from the elite of the country, those connected with the royal court. So Zariyacob knew if these elites could be convinced then most of Ethiopia, which had already felt a strong connection with the Old Testament, would not have a problem if some observed two Sabbaths. But it was still not an easy sell. The new Abunas, Michael and Gabriel, were at first seriously opposed to the idea themselves. But Zariyacob was nothing if not willful and persistent, and he slowly and patiently worked to persuade them to his point of view. And remember, being raised in a monastery, Tsar Yaqab was no stranger to theological discussions, so likely he himself was part of that persistent change of mind. And when he finally did do this, and brought them to his point of view, he then began to reach out to the Iwostatewos communities, building relationships with them. He would need cooperation from both sides. In the year 1450, Zariyakob convened a great council of the Ethiopian church. It became known as the Council of Dabra Mitmach. There he brought together abbots of the various large monasteries of the country, leaders of the house of Ewostatewos, and the two new Abunas. And there they were finally able to reach an agreement. The Iwastatewos house would be allowed to observe the two Sabbaths, Saturday and Sunday, but they would again submit to the church and reintegrate with other monasteries and churches. One document recording the event says this, And God revealed the honors of the two Sabbaths to our father, the Reverend Bishop Michael and Gabriel. He had not made this revelation to the bishops who came before them. And our fathers Abba Michael and Abba Gabriel agreed with us on the observance of the two Sabbaths and they declared this in their own handwriting. There were several other issues at this council that we won't spend too much time on, but we will be coming back to it next episode, and that's because one of those important issues had to do with a specific monk named Estefanos. This bold monk and his followers had been preaching some ideas that were troublesome to Zariyacob's mission of unity. For one, Estefanos refused to prostrate to holy icons and would refuse to prostrate even to himself, Zahra and they would not pray or prostrate to Mary or any of the other saints. This monk also focused on the idea that salvation was granted by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. And we'll talk about Estefanos a lot more next episode. But if you're thinking that Estefanos sounds a lot like a Protestant, then you wouldn't be the first. But sadly, Zaryukov was not interested in dealing with these theological matters at this time. Instead, he showed something that we will see a lot more as the episode continues. A brutal despotic side. And this council, even though it was about bringing reconciliation, Zaryukov was not about to risk losing that reconciliation because of another issue. So Estefanos was flogged and imprisoned and sent to a remote part of Ethiopia. But as I said before... We'll learn more about him later. And here is where Zara Yaqob reminds me of Jean Gerson from episode 16. In fact, the two were only about 70 years apart, Gerson being about 70 years before Yaqob. Gerson, if you remember, was very interested in reform and unity of the medieval church in Europe, which was then plagued by a schism between three popes. He was also well-versed in scripture and believed the church needed to return to what the Bible actually taught. But at the Council of Constance, Gerson, even though working tirelessly to heal that schism, would also condemn Jan Hus to death. And tragically, though they had similar ideas, Gerson did not have time, at least he didn't think he did, to deal with Hus, and instead let Hus be executed. And Zari Yaqab, I feel, almost faced the same problem. While well-versed in scripture and theology, He simply didn't have the time or the energy to deal with Estefanos' ideas. Instead, he took the easy way out and simply condemned Estefanos and his followers. But when the council was finished, Zariyacob had accomplished his goal. At least officially, the Ethiopian church was united again. But he still had two other issues, and the second of those issues was the church's organization. So the nation of Ethiopia had changed greatly since the time of Frumentius and Izana, which, remember, was over a thousand years before Zaria Cub. The borders had expanded and contracted many times. But since the 1200s, it had been slowly and steadily expanding outwards. But sadly, the Ethiopian church had not been keeping up with these changes. And while there were some new churches in these areas they very many times had clergy who could not even speak the language of the local populace. Most of the clergy had very little education whether they could speak the language or not. And while they could possibly go through the motions of the official liturgy, they were not at all equipped to teach or to preach. Because of this, very few of the new peoples conquered by Ethiopia had any interest or reason to convert to this new or strange religion. And to make matters worse, when they did convert... Usually they simply continued worshiping their pagan gods as well. This frustrated Tsari Yaqab to no end. He said, and I quote, there are no priests who preach, and so Satan reduces the people into slavery. Unquote. The pagan religions in the area were mostly focused on worshiping many gods and spirits in the land. Tsari was convinced that this worship was truly the worship of fallen angels and any pagan priest was a sorcerer. He was also afraid that these practices were seeping into Christian communities as well. He saw it as his God-given task to fight against this. He himself said, God raised us to this orthodox throne, so that we may dispense all idol worshippers. This is part of why Zahra Yaqob had asked two bishops from Egypt instead of one. The job was just too big for one man. And soon after receiving the two bishops, he sent each of them to the most pagan areas of the country. He hoped that the presence of a bishop would spur the local churches and monasteries into renewed mission. He turned out to be right. In the past, bishops had rarely left the capital, so their presence was invigorating to these local communities who never had someone so seemingly prestigious before them. And these two proved they could bring energy that refocused the church at large in Ethiopia. Zariyacub was also determined to use the resources of the most successful monasteries to educate and influence others in the country, and he was not afraid to use the carrot or the stick in this manner. As one scholar, Tadisi Tamrat, says, he used a strange combination of economic preferment and legal coercion to get all the monasteries to follow his reforms. He also made spheres of influence, to better organize the use of personnel and learning. And he worked with the newly reintegrated house of Ewostatewos, which helped found many new churches and monasteries in far-flung areas of his kingdom. These efforts ended up being very successful, more so than the Ethiopian Christians expected themselves. For instance, there's one quote from a surprise church leader about the most remote and pagan regions of Ethiopia at the time. The man had been wondering about one of these tribes, the Gafat people, and he thought, When will they believe, and when will they be baptized? Will it be in my lifetime, or it will be after my death? And while he was contemplating this, on the way, he met many Gafat men going to our king Zariyacob to be complimented for their recent conversion and their baptism in the name of the Trinity. Zariyacob also normalized expectations for Christian subjects and clergy. All Christians were expected to be at church every Sunday, and now also every Saturday. And this shows just how much the house of Eustavos was now championed by Zariyacob. Priests were expected not simply to do the liturgy, but also to teach. To teach the worship of God, His commandments, and the observance of His Sabbaths. Notice the plural, sabbaths. When communities were too far away from a church, they would regularly have a priest sent to them. At this time, Zahra Yacob also mandated that every Christian subject must have their own father confessor, that is, a priest who they would personally give their confessions to. And this is still part of the Ethiopian church today. An Ethiopian church member could only receive communion with the blessing of their father confessor. Like many other leaders of church revivals, like Alcuin, for instance, under Charlemagne, Zariah also hoped to bring about a renewal in education. He encouraged every church to have a library, and to copy more books for the kingdom. But while all this sounds good and wonderful, Zariah could also be a despot. He had no issues with using his secular power to change the church as he saw fit. Separation of church and state was certainly not on his radar. For him, the greatest goal of his own was the unity of faith in his kingdom. He was not afraid to punish any priest who would not follow his reforms, and some of his decrees became incredibly extreme. He even decreed that the symbol of the cross had to be attached to everything that a Christian owned and eventually tried to even have it tattooed or branded to all Christians' foreheads. I don't know how much that last one was actually enforced. But in the end, Zahri kab's rules were always backed up with soldiers and physical punishment. At one point, this led to an attempted rebellion that was only stopped by the intervention of the Egyptian patriarch. So while Zahri kab may have met his goal of reforming the Ethiopian church, he often did it through force. And even violence. So now we've discussed two of the three challenges Kub faced, the schism in the church and the reform of the church. The last one has less to do with the church in Ethiopia and more to do with it as an actual nation. So while Kub did lead several successful military campaigns against his neighbors, he always felt very vulnerable politically. Well, in Europe during this time, there was plenty of war those kingdoms still held the common bond of Christianity with their neighbors. This was not the case with Ethiopia. Zaryakab is quoted as saying, Our country Ethiopia is surrounded by pagans and Muslims in the east as well as the west. And this was certainly true. The nearest Christian nations were almost a thousand miles away from Ethiopia, with Islamic powers in between them but that did not stop Zahra Yaqab from reaching out and making contact with Christian Europe and inviting European diplomats to Ethiopia as well. Europe during this time did know a little bit about the Kingdom of Ethiopia, but not much. Ethiopians would also make pilgrimages to the Holy Land, and because of this there was sometimes contact between European crusaders and Ethiopian pilgrims. Fun side note, There are six churches today that help run the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in the Holy Land, a.k.a. the church built on the traditional side of Jesus' death and resurrection. One of those churches is the Ethiopian Church, because their presence too has been there so very long. So with this limited contact of Europeans and Ethiopians, there came an old legend about a distant Christian king named Prester John, According to this legend, there was a great eastern Christian kingdom that would someday attack the Muslim kingdoms from the east, while the European Christians attacked from the west. While this legend was probably not originally about Ethiopia, it quickly stuck to that country in the minds of Europeans. So, after great difficulty, Zaryakub was able to make contact and diplomatic relationships with some European powers. He was even able to send a delegation to a major church council, the Council of Florence, in 1441. But the delegation was always very confused, because everyone kept calling Czar Kab Prester John. And every time they'd try to correct someone, saying, uh, that's not our king's name, they seemed to ignore them, because everyone liked the legend way too much and wouldn't stop. And so a relationship began to grow between Europe and Ethiopia, however tenuous it was at first. And Zariyakob hoped that this relationship would bring craftsmen and engineers from Europe so that Ethiopia could also advance technologically. It would be a policy that would continue for many of Ethiopia's monarchs. And this relationship between Europe would help Ethiopia survive in the difficult years ahead. Now really, we're just scratching the surface with Zariyakob and these three major issues that he faced. He was a reformer, a general, a statesman, and, as I said before, even to some degree a theologian. And his interest in theology would continue his whole life, and he would even author or co-author several theological books, and he was always ready to discuss theology with abbots and priests. But as I said before, while he did all these tasks, it did not always mean he did them well. Without a doubt, he was determined, and his clear focus to meet his goals helped him but he could also be ruthless about his goals if necessary. And as time progressed, his ruthlessness showed more and more. Later in life, he became increasingly suspicious and isolated. He stopped trusting local governors and would place family members in those positions regardless of their skill, sometimes with disastrous consequences. He did have plenty of relatives to draw on because he was openly polygamous with three wives, but even some of his own family would end up being exiled. All of his punishments for disobedience or challenge became more and more harsh in his own country as well. When one brave and loyal abbot told the king that his punishments were becoming just that, too harsh and arbitrary, that abbot himself was thrown in prison and died several months later. Even his son and heir was disinherited for a time, though their relationship was able to be restored before Zariah Cobb's death. When he did die in 1468, His relationships with most of his family were strained or broken. And while he had accomplished so much, it does not seem that he died a happy man. So Zariyacob is a character who is somewhat ambiguous. His achievements strengthened the Ethiopian church and Ethiopia as a nation. Of that there's no doubt. And he brought enthusiasm and energy and determination that far exceeded anyone's expectations. He brought unity and accountability to a church that had needed it desperately. He brought education and reform, which the organizational church needed badly as well. He introduced practices that taught the common people the Christian faith deeply, and he was even able to make contact with the larger Christian world. But, as we also saw, his hands were stained with how he accomplished those goals. And this gets to another deep debate in Christianity that still continues to this day, and I think will probably continue forever. How is a Christian faithfully involved in government, and how does a Christian faithfully wield secular power? And in what ways should secular power and spiritual authority interact? I think you could do a whole podcast just on that topic. And just because in America we think we have the separation of church and state figured out, I don't think we necessarily do. How faith should affect one's decision-making in politics, whether simply a voter or someone with authority, still remains a debated topic inside the church and out. As for myself, being a Lutheran, I think I'd fall back on Luther's idea of vocation. That is, do whatever you're called to do in service of your neighbor and in service of God. Although I imagine Zara Jakob's response would be, that was my calling, to take care of the church in whatever way I could. So in this way, Zariacub is like many other Christian kings and emperors throughout history, like Constantine and later Charlemagne or Charles V or Oliver Cromwell. Sometimes he used his powers in ways that do not seem to be following the way of Jesus. And maybe that's why so few rulers end up getting officially sainted. It's very difficult for someone in authority not to abuse that power in some way or another, even with the best of intentions. So, is Zariyacob a faithful forbearer? Well, I guess, yes and no. He certainly set up the Ethiopian church well and left a lasting mark on its character, and much of that's positive. But, of course, he was also deeply flawed as well. While he was able to heal the schism in the church, he at the same time condemned Christians to death for their faithful teaching of Scripture. And while he expanded the influence of church and the preaching and teaching of the gospel— He also began enforcing it with violence. And while he knew scriptures well and even authored several theological books, he was also married to three women at the same time. So, I guess you could say he was a saint and sinner at the same time. Regardless of how he's remembered, the Ethiopian church was certainly changed forever. So that's all for this episode. I had originally hoped to do both Zariakob and Estefanos in one episode. However, I quickly saw that it grew to be too much. Zariakob was too influential, and I felt I needed to tell his whole story. We'll learn more about Estefanos next episode. And I think while Zariakob was like a combination of Jean Gerson, a reformer from within, and Charlemagne, a ruler solidifying his Christian kingdom, we'll see how Estefanos is a lot like a combination of Francis of Assisi and Jan Hus, reformers fully committed to their causes. And we will see just why Estefanos is sometimes known as Africa's first Protestant. So thank you again for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please let me know, whether on my website or Facebook or email. I know I owe at least one of my listeners, Pastor David Graves, a t-shirt, and I still have that design lying around, so if I can get enough interest, I will make them. So please, send me an email or a comment so I know you want one. Also, I'm looking for a core group to help me think of ideas, A, a small group that I can brainstorm with, and who can help me recruit help as I advertise the podcast. That sounds like something you're interested in please reach out to me and let me know that as well. And I've got one other announcement. I'd like to recommend another podcast that's coming out soon. It's done by my guest from episode 12, Christian Giebert. He and his brother, Alex are going to be looking in depth at the music of Bach. And Bach is also a faithful forebearer that I want to get to eventually. And I hope to have both of them on that episode. And don't worry. This goal in this podcast is to make everything very accessible, even if you aren't a music expert. So look for A Moment of Bach on your podcast player. That is, A Moment of Bach. Now, no guarantees that the Estefanis episode will be out in two weeks, but I will try very hard. And I hope that you had a blessed Christmas and New Year's, and I hope that you got to remember St. Nicholas in some of those. Of course, the real St. Nick, not the fat guy in the red. As always, please leave me a rating and especially a review. And I thank you so much for all of those of you who did review. And as always, please tell a friend. I'm Eric Klosson, and thanks for listening.